0: good morning, Liberty. Hope everyone's all right. So if you are visiting us today, we've been on a journey through a series of parables on the kingdom of heaven, mainly in the book of Matthew. And we've been looking at what Jesus has had to say about his kingdom and specifically his kingdom coming to earth. And so today we jump into Matthew 22 verse one. If you'd like to join me in your Bibles, I think we'll project it as well. We come to a parable of the wedding banquet. We start in verse one. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet." But they paid no attention at all, and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned the city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, "'How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend?' The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, "'Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside "'into the darkness where there will be weeping "'and gnashing of teeth. "'For many are invited, but few are chosen.'" Sure. <laughs> You'll be forgiven for thinking that escalated really, really quickly. And as I was preparing for today, I found myself getting increasingly frustrated and sometimes confused and somewhat petrified of standing here and talking about gnashing of teeth. If, this, if the kingdom of heaven is such a central theme of scripture, and it is, we'll get to that later, Why did Jesus have to describe his kingdom with word pictures and stories? Why couldn't he just tell us the facts? Why did he give us these images to struggle with and work through? The thing is, Jesus wasn't there to engage with our minds, as much as we would have liked this to be a download of facts. He was there to engage with our hearts. And the thing about our hearts, they don't seem to operate on facts, our hearts can be stubborn. Sometimes Scripture says they're hardened, and they tend to require a lot more persuasion than our minds do. So I'm going to share today just a few things from this parable that stood out to me. I don't think I could cover everything in there in one in one sermon. Um, so just three things from this parable that really spoke to me this week as I was preparing. And the first thing. Is that the banquet is already prepared. This was a this and this was important in the context of the moment, and it's importantly um, important today, right? It's no coincidence that as we read through the gospels, we encounter parable after parable describing the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom and the extension of his kingdom from heaven to earth is, after all, part of God's great design. God bringing his kingdom from heaven to earth. To understand this context? We need to do a little bit of a whirlwind tour, so please bear with me. It's going to be a very whirlwind tour. The kingdom of heaven and its arrival on earth is a central theme of scripture. It starts right at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve created in God's image, given the authority to rule over the earth. The garden itself represents what the kingdom of heaven is like. Mankind living in harmony with God, abiding in His presence, in communion with Him, obedient to Him. Satan had another idea, and Satan managed to intervene there, and we know that story. And it resulted in mankind being separated from God, from being exiled from the garden of Eden. But God thankfully was not done with us. And through the Old Testament, we read that He raises up a nation called Israel. And God has a particular purpose for this nation. She is to be an example to the rest of the world to see what it is like to live under the rule of God and His authority. Israel becomes like a beachhead for God's kingdom on earth, the vehicle through which he is going to reach the rest of the world. Isaiah prophesied of this purpose in Isaiah 49.6. He says, "'I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth.'" And even in their culture and societal norms, Israel was radically different from the rest of the world. Just think about how some of the practice of Israel's would have appeared to be those looking in at her. For example, the Israelites didn't charge interest when they lent money. People in my profession were out of a job. (laughs) When the Israelites harvested their crops, they left the corner of their fields for the poor and for passers-through. The Israelites observed the law of the tithes, which was used to bless the poor, the widows, the orphans, and those without land. How's this one? Every 50 years, the Israelites observed the year of jubilee, All debts were forgiven, slaves were set free, land was returned to those who had lost it. In a very real and practical sense, your slate was wiped clean. How crazy and obscene would this look in today's world? How crazy did it look to other nations of the time? The point is, Israel operated under a different kind of rule, set apart, they had a different economy, She was a living, breathing example of the kingdom of heaven. But Israel also lost the plot. The narrative of the Old Testament ends like a movie that doesn't resolve. Don't you hate those? Okay, You're on the edge of your seat, waiting for that final scene. You're waiting for the triumph of the hero or heroine of the story. You're waiting for the defeat of the villain. You're waiting for justice to be fulfilled. Instead, You're greeted by the rolling of the credits. And you don't know what happens. You're sitting there with a series of what-ifs through the back of your mind. The only consolation that you've got is that there is maybe, hopefully, a sequel coming out. And this is where the Israelites found themselves. They were scattered, exiled, stripped of their former glory, and were living with a purpose unfulfilled. But they were hopeful, they were expectant that sometime that prophecy would be fulfilled and that she would be restored to her rightful place in history, that God's kingdom would come back to her. It was in this climate that Jesus was teaching when he spoke this parable. It had been more than 400 years since the first installment, and God's people were still waiting for that sequel. That's a long time. They were waiting for the fulfillment of a promise. And Jesus enters the scene, starting his ministry with a bang. And in Mark 1.15, he proclaims, The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this good news. So the question on everyone's lips was, When is this kingdom going to arrive? How are we going to recognize it? What are we going to see? And Jesus answered, such a similar question from the Pharisees in this way, in Luke 17:20, he says, Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Commentators have described the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God as the manifestation of God's ruling presence. Jesus was saying, I'm standing here among you, right in front of you, right now. I am the kingdom incarnated, not only in what I do, but in who I am. The kingdom of God is here. And to put it in the words of the parable that we just read in verse 4, the king was saying, I have prepared my dinner, past tense. My oxen and ca- cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come, come to the wedding banquets. Secondly, an invitation is extended. The king was inviting people to the wedding feast. Now, one would expect that to be invited by a king to a big wedding party would be a massive, massive privilege. That such an occasion hosted by the king would be the top of the social calendar. In today's world, all plans would be canceled, diaries would be cleared, preparations made, flight tickets booked, socialites would be competing to have the best outfits, the best makeup, the best-looking dates, the best entrance. Imagine the uproar on social media. Choosing an outfit for the weekend. Hashtag weekend plans. Hashtag glam. <laughs> Hashtag wedding party. Hashtag king's banquet. You need four hashtags to make it real, people. <laughs> Tabloids would be fa- fighting over themselves to cover the event. Advertisers would be lining up to have their branding on the door. But this isn't the reaction at all. This is not what we see. Some of the invitees just outright refused the invitation. There's no indication why they refused. Maybe it was just too much effort. They would have to travel to get there. Logistics are just too complicated. Maybe they would have to cancel other plans. Maybe the event was not quite as auspicious as we would have imagined, and the act of attending was just too much effort. Other invitees were just indifferent. They were preoccupied by their own things. They they would have preferred to tend their own fields and their own business. They were self-sufficient, you see. They were focused on their own needs and problems, and they missed entirely the point of the king's generosity. They were just making it on their own. Other Other invitees show active contempt. Some of them mistreated and even killed the king's servants. They were in open rebellion. Perhaps to them, the king represents a system to actively rebel against. Maybe it represents to them a rule that they need to resist. Maybe they prefer their own autonomy. Eventually, the king extends his invitation to everybody. The servants are sent to gather those from the streets, both the bad and the good. I don't know which streets they went to, but I can only imagine what type of people you might have found Hanging around the street corners in those days. Maybe it was just somebody returning home after a long day's of work. Maybe it was a trader selling his wares trying to get the last of his stock moved for the day. Maybe it was a prostitute starting her shift. Maybe it was a pickpocket looking for his next target. Regardless, they are all invited. This was not lost on those listening to Jesus' words. An invitation has been extended to everybody to enter, regardless of nationality, race, custom or station in life, regardless of their own performance. This invitation is extended to us. It's the central theme of the gospel. But I wonder how we receive it. Are we just indifferent? Blind to what the King is offering? Are we too absorbed in our own business, chasing our own priorities, chasing our next promotion, next new car, next new house, next holiday, next date, that person we want to marry? We're we chasing that on our own terms. Are we actively resisting the invitation, with, the state, with with the status quo, wanting to fight for our own independence? The third thing that stood out for me was the fact that what we wear matters. In those days, it was customary for the person hosting the wedding feast to clothe his guests for the wedding. I'm pretty sure people, especially dads with daughters that are getting married, are glad that's not the case anymore. That's expensive. But these garments were typically quite simple. They were nondescript, and they were for everybody to wear. And this was important. At the wedding feast, people mingled as equals. The robes provided by the host were a great leveller. They covered your station in life. As a guest to the wedding, the only thing that mattered was that you had been invited and that you had accepted that invitation. Your wealth, your rank, your power, whether you are a landowner or not, your employment status, none of that mattered. We pick up the story in verse 11. When the king came in to see the guests, He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What becomes clear here is that there is a requirement to enter the king's presence. And that requirement is to be clothed in the robes provided to you by the king. Now, interestingly, that norm of providing clothes to the wedding guests for sovereigns or kings of the time extended beyond just the wedding feast. It extended to all occasions where somebody was presented in front of the king. Eastern kings of the time would provide a robe of office for the occasion for somebody to come and have an audience with them. And to ignore that as a guest of the king was one of the biggest offenses you could, you could make to that king and to his family. Now, what, the, what exactly these wedding robes in this story represent has been a subject of debate. Many theologians have discussed it. Some have argued that it is faith. Others argue that it's a holy life. I quite like this, this quote by John Calvin who said, As to the wedding garment, is it faith or is it a holy life? This is a useless controversy, for faith cannot be separated from good works, nor do good works proceed from any other source other than from faith. Christ intended only to state that the Lord calls us on the express condition of our being renewed by the Spirit, and that in order to our remaining permanently in His house, we must put off the old man with his pollutions and lead a new life. The thing that is clear and the thing that I want to highlight again is that something is needed to make us worthy to stand before the king. I think the appropriate word here is righteousness, or a state of being justified before God. Scripture often represents righteousness as a garment, just like this parable uses the image of a garment. For example, Job in Job 29:4 says, "I put on righteousness as my clothing." Justice was my robe and my turban. Listen to the imagery used by Isaiah in chapter 61, verse 19. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels." This brings us right to the very central core of the gospel message. None of us are worthy to stand before the king. It doesn't matter how good we think we are. It doesn't matter how much effort we've put in. It doesn't matter what we've achieved. In the presence of the king, we simply do not measure up. But we are still invited, and we are offered something, that makes us worthy. Paul makes the case repeatedly over and over again to the Romans. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, therefore since we have been justified through faith we have peace of, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 5 verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood how much more shall we be saved through God's wrath through Him? And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul says the following to the church. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I love that imagery of taking something off and putting something new on. To me, it fits so well with the imagery of this parable. Can you see the parallel? We're called to take off our own dirty robes and to put on the robes provided by the king. Robes that came at an extraordinary cost. Jesus willingly suffered on the cross so that we don't have to. He paid that price so that we could stand before that king in that banquet hall, confident in the robe of righteousness that Christ has purchased for us. We have been given an incredible, incredible gift. The robe has been freely given to us. We just need to put it on. And for me, this is the very definition of grace, that we can be gathered from the dirty streets, the stench of the streets still on us, brought into that banquet hall, clothed in the king's robes and presented before him as worthy. Not of our own doing, but because of the ultimate price that Jesus paid for us. And that's what Paul's getting at when he writes again to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2 verse 1. This is one of my favorite pieces of Scripture, so it's a little bit longer. I'll read all of it. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is not of ourselves. We cannot on our own find a robe that matches that provided by the king. One man in the parable missed this point entirely. Can you imagine what was going through the king's mind when he saw this man? How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? I can't help but notice the irony of the king calling this man friend and then throwing him out into the darkness in the very next verse. The king must have been incredulous. We don't know anything about the man or why he didn't put on the wedding garment. Maybe he was just out of his depth. Maybe he came from a humble background, and he was ignorant of the customs of nobility. He was ignorant of the requirements of him. He was simply in the wrong WhatsApp group. Maybe he was wealthy. He's worked so hard to accumulate his riches. Because of his pride, he viewed his robes as superior to those that the kings could provi- to what the king could provide. He was unwilling to let go of his own status. Maybe he was simply careless. He's caught up in the rush of the occasion, preoccupied by the festivities around him, busy networking, meeting people. He never paused to take stock of himself. He never looked inward at his own appearance and at his own heart. And in so doing, he missed these important, vital details. What he wore mattered. And one thing I'm certain of, in that moment, when he found himself face to face with the king, there was no suitable excuse for him to use. He was speechless. Can I call the musos up so long while I close? I don't know where you find yourself in this story today. Perhaps you weren't aware that a banquet has been prepared, that the feast is ready, that you have been invited, and you're standing here with an invitation in your hand, and you don't know how to respond, and you've got a choice to make. And I want to urge you, don't ignore that invitation. It's the greatest invitation of your life. Don't let it slip away. Maybe you've been holding on to this invitation for a while. You've been so distracted by the daily grind, by pressures at work, pressures at home. You just haven't responded. You think you'll respond to it later. It becomes like that WhatsApp message that you thought you'd get back to tonight and you realize two weeks later you haven't responded to. Don't let the next promotion, the next thing on your to-do list, the upgrade to your car, your next holiday, your plans for Christmas get in the way. Respond to that invitation now. Maybe you've just been uncertain. You don't know if this banquet is worth it. The king is waiting to welcome you. Nothing can compare to his majesty. The joy of being together with him in his presence. Maybe you've been around for a while. You're aware of the banquet. You may even find yourself in the banquet hall. You kind of think know how things work around here. You've seen it. But for some reason, you haven't reached out and accepted that robe that the king is offering you. Maybe. You weren't aware that that requirement was there. Maybe you're struggling with pride. Maybe you think that your own achievements are more glorious than what that king is offering. So maybe it's that pride that's been stopping you, a reluctance to rely on on something else other than your own success, a reluctance to remove your own finery to put on the king's robe. Maybe you just don't feel good enough. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking that stench from the streets is resting on me and everybody else can smell it and I'm dressed in dirty rags and I'm not worthy of putting on this fine linen offered to me by the king. But you've forgotten that he loved you before you were born. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He's calling you. That robe He's made for you. And there's nothing that you can do to make yourself more worthy. There's nothing that any of us can do. The only thing that can happen is for us to take off those dirty rags and put on that robe. He's waiting to clothe you in His righteousness, not your own. And all you need to do is accept So if any of this is describing how you're feeling right now, I want to urge you to respond today. We're going to go into a time of worship. I'm going to ask that life group leaders, if you guys can kind of congregate near the aisles today. And if there's anybody that recognizes themselves in the image of this parable, please go speak to somebody. Ask for prayer, all right? But don't let the invitation get forgotten. Don't rely on your own dirty rags. That robe is waiting for you.